May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of the Father, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with each one of you. Amen. My dear friends of Jesus, what a privilege it is for me to be here with you this afternoon. It was a joy to be in this assembly this morning under the hearing of God's holy word and how we would desire to render praise and thanksgiving unto the God of our fathers who has so loved us that he gave his only begotten son so that we can say with John the apostle behold what manner of love the father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. Therefore, the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. Look at what he has given in the form of his Son, and see what he has done in order to procure our redemption, to provide for us, not only the forgiveness of all of our sins, but a robe of righteousness that makes us well-pleasing in the sight of God. I want to bring you greetings also today from the congregation that I serve there in the city of Seattle, from the Christian fellowship there. And I'm also very happy to have my wife here with me, the first time she has been here in New England. She retired from her adult care business that she operated in our home for more than 10 years. She retired on the 1st of October, and since then, I've had the pleasure of her company on most of the travels that I have undertaken since then. And in addition to our own congregation, I was in Los Angeles last weekend, and then Mary and I, in the company of Willard and Elsa Terrible and Ken and Fran Carlson, spent somewhat more than a week in Guatemala at the early part of this month. Then we've been down in Denver, where the Western Mission is making an effort to again open the opportunity for services there. We were there in November and then again in February. And the Western Mission has also been expanding its efforts in Vancouver, British Columbia. We are endeavoring to have a couple of services a month there among the larger Finnish population that is to be found in that city. I was there in the month of February again and not only spoke at a Saturday night fellowship in a home there, but was invited to speak at the services in a church in Burnaby in British Columbia. It is pastored by a pastor from Finland, Pastor Yoensu, and he serves both an English and a Finnish-speaking congregation. I spoke at the English service at 10 o'clock, and then through translation at their Finnish service at 11.30. The Finnish service was much better attended than the English, 
And it's always a special blessing when I go there to have the opportunity to speak the word of God to these many immigrants who have come from that country as well and uh, to speak to them not in my native language but in theirs by means of an interpreter. How blessed it is when God also grants his presence through his spirit so that it is not we who interpret his word, but that it is the author of the word, the Holy Spirit, that is the interpreter, not only in the heart and in the spiritual experience of the speaker, but also in the hearts and in the spiritual experiences of the hearers, so that we are all on the same level, the same place. And what is that? It is the level of grace. For it is there where our holy and our righteous God desires to meet us. As the prophet Isaiah also spoke of when he said that every valley is going to be exalted, every mountain and every hill is going to be made low, the crooked places are going to be made straight, and the rough places are going to be made plain, and the glory of the Lord is going to be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. That is the place where we can meet our God, we can come to know him as our loving Heavenly Father, and we can also believe the wonderful message that Jesus gave to Mary Magdalene to deliver to his disciples when he told her to go and say unto my brethren that I ascend unto my God and your God and unto my Father and your Father. And so today, as we believe the gospel, we're not only pardoned criminals, we're not only pardoned sinners, but we have been provided with a robe of righteousness, which is more than acceptable before God. It is one that is well-pleasing in his sight, even as the Lord himself was testified to by the Eternal Father, and on the occasion of his baptism, And on the Mount of Transfiguration, remember how the Father said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And on the second occasion, on the Mount of Transfiguration, the Father added, Hear ye him. And it is my prayer this afternoon that he is the one that we will also hear today as we turn to the word which has been written aforetime and has been written for our learning, that we through the patience and the comfort of the scriptures might have hope. And may each one of you be prayerful that the Father in this hour would also touch our hearts and our lips. I'm going to read from the writings of the Apostle, who is the author of the book addressed to the Hebrews. And I'm going to read from verse 14 in chapter 2 and through verse 6 in chapter 3. And I read in the Lord's name. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all of their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily, 
He took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest pertaining to God, and to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and the high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him that appointed him, as Moses was faithful in all his house. For this man is counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who hath builded the house has more honor than the house. For every house is builded by some man, but he that built all things is God. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a testimony for those things which were to be spoken after. But Christ, as a son over his own house, whose house are we? If we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of our hope firm unto the end. Amen. These are thy holy words, Holy Father. Sanctify us through thy truth. Thy word is everlasting truth. Amen. The epistle to the Hebrews has generally been ascribed to the Apostle Paul. Although we do not find in this epistle that he has identified himself as the author, but many of the biblical scholars are of the mind that he was eminently qualified to write this very unique and important epistle in which we find a correlation between the worship in the Old Testament and that worship which was fulfilled in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ into the world in order that he might provide the redemption that was promised and was and that was signified by the type of worship that God had instituted for his people in the Old Testament times. And so as we look upon these writings to this early congregation, we see how the Spirit of God was at work in informing, instructing, teaching, guiding, and encouraging these believers that they might walk in the light of sacred scripture, remembering and understanding that those things that were found in the Old Testament were also given by the inspiration of God and were fulfilled as a result of the new. And as we noticed here in the scripture that I read, the author is pointing out to us that it is because children are partakers of flesh and blood that Christ also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all of their lifetime subject to angels. And then I want to include this 16th verse before we begin to comment on the former two. In the verse 16 it says, For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. This is, I believe, a very important part 
that we would want to connect with the teachings that we have in the first chapter of this epistle, where we find that uh, the author's intent is to prove the superiority of Christ over the angels. And this is, of course, a very important biblical part because uh, the angels are referred to in the Word of God as ministering spirits sent out to be to minister to those who will be heirs of eternal life. But Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, is uh, on a higher level and on a totally different plane than the angels, for he is God himself. He is the Word that was in the beginning with God, and as John tells us in his Gospel, that Word was made flesh, and it has dwelt among us, and we have beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, who is full of grace and truth. And then uh, I would like to remind myself, and you as well, that the reason that an angel could not bring about the redemption that the Lord Jesus Christ did was because you and I are of a different substance. We have been created, yes, in the image of God. In the likeness of our human flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ came here in order that he might provide the redemption that was necessary for sin that had been committed in the flesh. We know what it was, what the Word of God tells us concerning the early life of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden when God placed them in that beautiful garden and there was nothing there that would trouble or annoy them. And they had the privilege of eating from all of the trees in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because God had said that on the day that you eat of it you will surely die. And each day... In the cool of the evening, the Creator came into the garden and he communed with Adam and Eve. What a beautiful relationship they had there when they could anticipate the coming of God with joy, with expectation, with hope, and knowing that they would have communion with him. But uh, we all know the sad story of what happened when Eve was deceived and in turn Adam succumbed to to the same temptation and the realization dawned upon them that they stood naked before that God whose visits they had anticipated in their innocent state. But on that day, when sin entered into the world, we know that they no longer anticipated the coming of God with joy, but it was with dread and with fear. They tried to cover their nakedness with leaves and made an apron in order to cover their bodies. And when the voice of God was heard in the garden, Adam did not have the knowledge to come forth and to admit that he had sinned But the fear that overtook him was such that he endeavored to hide from the all-seeing eye of God. And he didn't answer at first when God began to call upon him. But uh, we know that as God continued to call, then Adam came forth and he told God, I heard your voice and I hid myself because I am naked. And we see then the evidence of the corruption of that sin when God asked Adam, Who has told you that you are naked? And Adam said, The woman that you gave to me, she gave me of the fruit of the tree, and I did eat. 
And uh, then when God spoke also to Eve, she said uh, that the serpent beguiled her and she ate. And so sin entered into the world and death by sin. And thus death has passed upon all men, for all have sinned. And that is what the author tells us, that children are partakers of flesh and blood. Every father and every mother who is here today has transmitted to your offspring that original sin that came there in the garden, and we have received it from our parents. It is as the scripture says, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? All of us uh, who have come here into the world are even as David said, we have been conceived in sin and we have been born in iniquity and no head is higher than another. We all have received that same inheritance and it has begun to manifest itself in our lives many times at a very, very early age. And so we hear then that because the children were partakers of flesh and blood, it was necessary that Jesus Christ also would take part of the same. And I do not need to tell you how this took place, because we all ascribe to the sacred biblical truth that he was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and that he was born of the Virgin Mary. And many there are in the religious world today who deny this basic biblical concept. I was talking with one brother here some time ago, and he told me of a conversation he had had with his cousin, who lived in a different area than we do. And she had told him that the pastor that now serves in their Lutheran congregation had told her that it isn't going to hurt you if you believe in the virgin birth. But he didn't think that it was necessary to believe that basic concept. But I'd like to ask you today, how is it possible for someone who has been conceived by corruptible sin, who has uh, that inherited gift within him, to redeem another who has been conceived by the same corruptible sin? Totally impossible. It was only when Jesus Christ came here in our likeness and in our form, took upon himself the form of man, that redemption was enabled. For the one who would redeem had to be better than the one who was to be redeemed. It could only be the one who was without sin. And consequently, it can only be God himself in the likeness of his son. Some years ago, I was called by an officer of the court in our city to try to intervene in a domestic dispute in a family that lived not far from our church. And uh, they had said that they had a Lutheran heritage, and since that way they lived close to the church, I was the one that the judge selected for this responsibility. I went to the home of this uh, family. And the very first question that the husband asked me was this. He asked, do you believe in eternal punishment? Do you believe that there is such a place as the where the fire does not is not quenched and where the worm does not die? And I told him, I believe that every word of God is true. I believe that everything is written in God's holy word is eternal truth. 
and I subscribed to it 100%. And uh, he became violently angry. He exploded like a volcano, and he began to curse God. He began to curse God up one side and down the other. And he told me that God sits in heaven upon the throne of his glory. He looks down upon us miserable wretches here on earth. And he gloats in the trials and the tragedies that we have to experience here. I sat quietly and listened to him as uh, he went on with his tirade. And when he was through, he was almost limp from exhaustion. And I turned to him... And I said, you have not described the God that I have come to talk to you about today. I do not know that God of whom you are speaking. And I told him, that God that I have come to speak to you of today has been here on this earth. He has been here in the form of a man. He has been here in our likeness. He has lived among us. He has been tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. And I continued to explain the ministry of the Son of God while he was here on earth. How from even that early age of 12, when he went up to the temple in the company of his mother and Joseph, and uh, he tarried behind when they began their journey home. And how after three days, Mary and Joseph found him in the temple. And he was sitting among the doctors, the learned men. And he was astounding them at his questions and at his answers. And when his mother asked him, son, why have you thus dealt with us? Your father and I have sought you with sorrow. And how he answered, didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? that I must be about my father's business. And so this Savior that came here was not only a representative of God, but Paul the Apostle tells us that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, but as committed unto us the word of reconciliation and so we all recognize, we know and we understand that Jesus Christ had to be true God, begotten of the Father from eternity, but it was also necessary for him to be true man, born of the Virgin Mary, in order that that sin that we have committed, that began in the garden and continues also until this day, might be atoned for, might be paid in the flesh. And uh, during this holy season, when we speak much about the atoning sacrifice of our Lord, we find ourselves so often at a loss with which to be able even to begin to describe some of those moments of anguish and pain that were our Lord's in the hours in which he succumbed to death on the cross. But the scripture tells us he took on him the seed of Abraham. And we know that it was from the family of Abraham that 
he did come, even as we have already heard today. And it tells us, as I have already referred to, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. When we think of him, the Lord of glory, the one through whom all things were created, and recognize that he had to say, the foxes have holes and the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has not where to lay his head. We recognize how he humbled himself to that extent. Some years ago, there was a lady in our area whose family had been searching for her for a number of years. They had lost track of her. And I was asked if I would search for her in our city since she had lived there. And I found her in our city. And I began to speak to her of salvation. And God, in his time, opened her heart and she embraced the gospel. She had suffered a very debilitating stroke. It was difficult to understand her speech. She was helpless in a wheelchair and in bed. But she believed the gospel. But one day, in a moment of difficulty, in a moment of depression, she began to ask me, why doesn't God heal me? Why do I have to continue to sit here in this condition year after year? And I said to her, I do not understand the will of God in every case, not in yours also. But one thing I want to ask you this afternoon is this. When you were well, when you were actively engaged in your life, did you ever think about the salvation of your soul? And she said, no. I was so busy in life that I didn't give any thought whatever to eternity and to the salvation of my soul. So I asked her, is this your affliction too great a price to pay for the Lord's having arrested you on in your life and given you spiritual awakening and the grace of salvation. And she said, no, it is not too great a price that God had to lay his hand upon me in that way in order that I might begin to consider the salvation of my soul. And I told her I was led to be her caregiver or her, her um, looked after her affairs after that. And I told her one day that you have a place in which to live. You have good care. You have food. 
clothing, and I try to visit you. And then I said to her, remember that Jesus said, the foxes have holes and the birds have nests, but the Son of Man does not have where to lay his head. And she began to rejoice in the knowledge that she's going to walk one day. She's going to dance on the streets of gold in the new Jerusalem of which our brother spoke because the Bible tells us that it does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we're going to be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now let's look at a couple of the verses in the third chapter. And I love these words. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. Holy brethren, are there any people here today who feel that they are holy brethren? I believe that there are many people here today who believe that through the merit of Christ they are his brethren, even though we do not feel holy. We're not holy in this carnal portion. We're not holy in this old Adam. We are sinners, but we are pardoned sinners. But we also have been given by our Lord Jesus Christ something that we could never make, something that we could never acquire. When I was a much younger man, and I thought about, or as we say here, to consider the apostle and the high priest of our profession, it seemed like I thought constantly of his only of his atoning sacrifice. And when I say only, I certainly am not endeavoring to belittle that sacrifice that he made. As I have already said, it is impossible to fully comprehend or to describe what it entailed. But it seems as the years pass and as the time goes by, I became more and more aware, not only of the sins of commission that are so often a part of our lives, but I began to experience a greater revelation of how many sins of omission there are in my life. How many times I experience that I do not do the things that I ought to do. A recognition of the fact that we need not only forgiveness, but we need an imputed righteousness that makes us pleasing and acceptable before God. And so there is one place that I often like to go and it is to Jacob's well. 
We've all heard about Jacob's well. We've read about it, and maybe there are some of you here today who have even, in a physical sense, been to the Holy Land and have stood at Jacob's well. But I visit there because I like to listen to what the Lord spoke in his conversation with the woman of Samaria. You're all familiar with that. So I'm not going to take a great deal of time to go through the entire part. But I want to refer especially to the place where the disciples came back after having been in the city or in to buy something for them to eat. The Lord had waited there at the well because he was weary. He had struck up the conversation with this Samaritan woman. And when the disciples came back, they were amazed that he was still talking with her. And they wanted him to eat. And Jesus told them, I have meat to eat that you don't know anything about. And then the disciples asked, Has anyone been here to bring him something to eat? And remember how the Lord answered? The Lord said, My meat is to do the will of my Father which is in heaven and to finish the work that he has given me to do. Oh, how I love to hear that. To know that he put the will of the Father above all things. And I find so often that I fail there. So often we consult with flesh and blood rather than responding to the prompting of the Spirit. Let me explain what I mean by an experience I had here a while back. When I awakened on this particular morning to which I refer, the very first thought that came into my mind when I awakened that morning was a man that I had visited earlier who was not doing well. And I had heard that he was in a hospital and I felt prompted from within that I should go and see him. But I began to confer with flesh and blood. This is what I conferred about. When I had been to see him the last time, he was in his home. And when I came there and his wife answered the door and admitted me to the house, the man that I had come to see was seated at the dining room table. And there were three other men, so there were four men sitting together at the table, and they were playing cards. And he stood up, extended his hand, and welcomed me. And he sat right back down at his place at the card table and continued the game of cards. His wife invited me to the living room. She sat down beside me, and I spent quite a bit of time there. But the man that I had come to see ignored the fact that I was there. He continued until I excused myself. And I was on my way out the door when he stood up and shook my hand and said, Thank you for coming. So when I reviewed that happening that morning, I thought, Why should I go there again? And I don't think I was thinking as Christ would think. 
I was thinking of my own pride and my own honor that he hadn't even in our vernacular given me the time of day, much less any respect for the reason for which I came. So for two hours that morning, I struggled. God said go, and I said I don't want to go. But finally, I got in my car, and I drove to the hospital some 30 miles away and went into the room where this man was in bed. And I began to speak to him, probably in a little bit of a matter-of-fact manner. And when I was through, I said, I'm going to leave now, John. But is there anything that you would like to say to me before I leave? And do you know what he said? He asked, is it possible that at this late hour in my life, I could receive the forgiveness of all of my sins? And he reached up and drew me down to his breast. And God's grace through the gospel began to flood his heart and his soul. And when he released me from his grasp, he looked at me and in an incredulous tone, he asked, Do you really mean that all of my sins from the cradle to the grave are forgiven? And I said, yes, I really mean that. But it isn't important that I really mean that. But it is important that God really means that. On the basis, on the testimony of his holy word. When the Lord Jesus Christ said to the thief on the cross, who was there in the pains of his anguishing death, Verily I say unto you, This day you shall be with me in paradise. I can assure you that the Lord offers the same to you through the gospel that you have heard, and may he give you the grace to believe it. This is an example of what I mean when I say that many times we certainly do not feel holy. We never feel holy, but we are thankful that we have become partakers of a calling that is not an earthly calling, but it is a heavenly calling that the Lord God of glory, who works individually in human hearts in order that he might effect salvation within us, is still the God of grace. He's still upon the throne there in heaven, and at his right-hand side is his only begotten Son, your Redeemer and my Redeemer, as we have heard here, that he is the one who makes intercession for us. And so today, as we conclude this first hour of fellowship here, let us remember what a blessing it is that we have received this heavenly calling and also to recognize and to know that the assurance of our salvation does not rest in our feelings. If it rested in our feelings, it would be upon not only an unstable foundation, but it would be upon a very impossible foundation. It has to rest upon the promises of God's holy word fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who said, I am come that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly. And the Lord also said to his disciples, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed, and you will know the truth, 
and the truth will make you free. And that is what it says here in the last verse when it tells us, but Christ is a son over his own house. Whose house are we? If we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of our hope firm unto the end. And I thank God that remaining steadfast in faith is not left to my own watchfulness. It's not left to my own ability. It isn't left to my own power. But it is in the hands of the one of whom Peter has said when he talked about the glory of that resurrection that we have experienced when we have been begotten again unto a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. And now this verse, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto the salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Remember, dear friends, that the Lord Jesus Christ never sleeps. The Bible tells us the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and his ears are open unto their cry. And let us ask him that when sleep tends to overtake us, as it so often does, to watch and to pray. And why? Because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Amen.